all of the old people are retiring. We have a huge number of people who left clinical healthcare altogether after the pandemic. We all need to be at a clinical workplace that can effectively support a new grad PA. Welcome to Scrubs and Squats, the podcast where we discuss health and health policy so that you're better prepared to make the decisions that will give you more power over your business, your career, and your life. I'm your host, Tiffany Ryder, professional athlete turned emergency medicine physician associate, health consultant, and benefit strategist. I have nothing to sell you and just ask that if you like what we're doing here, you review this episode and subscribe. Real quick, before we get started, I have to remind you, that although I'm a licensed healthcare professional, my ramblings here are just opinions and information and should never be taken as medical advice or as the official views of any affiliated organizations. I believe that primary care providers are the real superheroes and you should check with yours for personalized guidance. All right, on to today's episode. Why don't you go ahead and just start by telling the listeners who you are and what your mission is? All right. Well, I would say that I am a PA educator. Um, it's kind of fun to be able to say that. I think I've arrived. <laughs> um, I've been a PA since 2011. I graduated from George Washington University's PA program. I went into emergency medicine shortly after I graduated. I spent more than 10 years in emergency medicine and made my way through all of that. Eventually became a traveler where I went to different ERs within the state of Maryland and really got to be proficient at being in ERPA. I have three children and a marriage, and my husband's on shift work. And so all of the fun things that come with that and balancing that lifestyle. In 2019, I went into PA education on a mostly full-time basis, and that's where I met you, and then went on to another institution where I'm working currently and where I am the didactic education director. So awesome. Awesome. So as lucky as I feel to have had you as a mentor and a guide, it seems all encompassing. What really drew you into education? Well, I think that we're all teachers, right? We end up teaching somebody something at some point in time, right? If you're lucky enough, like I was to grow up where you're involved in community organizations, you end up by default sometimes as a teenager being the one who teaches the Sunday school class or the swim lessons or whatever. Sure. So we all teach. And I, I liked teaching from an early age. I just enjoyed it. So it was just kind of a natural thought process that when I was thinking I had done a lot of stuff in emergency medicine and kind of wondering where else I'm going to go with this career to start pondering if I wanted to go into PA education. I think the hallmark of being PA is that you have to be willing to teach yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to be sure. willing to figure out what skills you need to acquire and how you're going to acquire them. And then you go do it. You go talk to the right people as much as you can, but you just acquire those skills on your own. And PA education is very similar to just being a PA. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I follow a prominent NP leader, that um, is actually at University of Maryland downtown. And I heard a podcast interview that she was doing uh, recently. Actually, I'm not sure if the episode was recently, but I heard it recently. And, and on there, she, you know, she was really talking about you know, what it means to be a leader and mentorship. And one of the things that really stuck with me, because a lot of the 
guests that come on here talk about burnout. And one of the things that she was talking about was how this idea of teaching and mentorship, even if it means that you're working more hours on top of your clinical job, really does this reverse feeding of the soul that was useful for reducing burnout and allowing you to sort of address some of the issues with imposter syndrome. Have you found benefits like that? Absolutely. So I would say that, you know, most people I know are willing to work really, really hard and really, really long when it doesn't feel like work, when it feels rewarding, when they feel effective, when they feel like they're making a difference, when they feel like they're tapping into their purpose or their higher meaning, right? And so I really relate to that where basically if it doesn't feel like work, you'll work all the hours, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I've talked about when I've talked about burnout to health professionals is the three kind of aspects of burnout. One of them is feeling ineffective, right? Mm-hmm. When you are teaching, when you are mentoring, you are precepting a student in the emergency. Yeah. And you just have this like constant narrative running through the day. And at the end of the shift, you're like, wow, I really do know a lot. Yeah. And like, and I just like knowledge bombed this like poor (laughs) (laughs) this is my running narrative of everything that's going through my head yeah right and i think that if you find yourself in that space where you're like where am i along this burnout pathway is it that i feel ineffective having that opportunity to mentor to teach to lead can really advance that part of the effectiveness. Now, granted, it's not like if your job is horrible and you're set up in this terrible way by your employer that taking on a student is going to fix everything. Sure. Definitely not the case. Sure, sure. Simplification. It's an interesting dynamic. I, uh, I had a trip this weekend for work and I was gone Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I'm driving home. I'm exhausted. You know, six hour drive that turned into a nine hour drive because of DC traffic. And I had several calls with students. One of them was an undergraduate student who it's her dream to become a PA. And another one was someone who's actually been working as an athletic trainer for a couple of years and was looking for advice and direction on his personal statement for his PA application. And I'm going through my day, I'm fighting with traffic. And I was like, oh gosh, I have two more phone calls. But I got on those phone calls and I just gave what I had to give, which two years into clinical practice, you wouldn't think would be that much, but it did exactly what you just described for me. It allowed me to feel competent and like I was able to pay back what the universe had given me in mentorship and direction. And it really is almost an invigorating feeling that refills the energy instead of takes it, even though it's more time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've heard you talk a little bit about what transition is like for your PA students finally getting through their clinical year, accomplishing everything they set out to accomplish, and then entering the workforce. Tell me a little bit about UC as far as that landscape. Yeah, so I would say that even before the pandemic, so 2019, as I was still in kind of full-time emergency medicine practice, working as a traveler for a relatively large staffing company, I saw some trends that were starting to worry me a little bit. 
in terms of we're not going to hire new grads, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But we'll hire you if you go get six months at some urgent care clinic where we don't know the quality of your mm -hmm. training or your experience. We'll hire you after that, right? And we're not going to provide you with new grad training. We're having trouble with uh, collections and with new healthcare billing legislation. So the uh, first thing we're going to do is we're going to cut things from providers. We're going to cut your CME allowance. We're going to cut your scribes. We're going to cut your hours. You don't have as many people to cover mm. the schedule. So I saw things like that happening and continued to be in clinical practice at least one or two days a week while I was teaching. And then was reminded as I'm interacting with students who are, you know, starting to look at their job prospects, right? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about talking to students on a daily basis is you realize like how much you know that they don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I saw all of this optimism and all of this energy and these students who are like, really just, they just want to be in poor. They don't want to see patients, yeah. right? Like they're so excited to get out yeah. there. Yeah. And so many new grad PAs from 2021 were feeling that maybe they should take a job, even if it wasn't ideal. Probably three or four months after I started getting mm -hmm. the phone calls and I started getting the emails mm. and it was what I had worried about, which is basically that people were ending up in jobs where they were just not being put into a position where they could be happy. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. I was willing to take almost anything. We were competing against people who had gotten laid off during the pandemic, who had 10 years of experience. What did we really have to bring to the table? And I was coming in this as a second slash third career, yep. and I didn't even know what questions to ask. Even if I'd been willing, even with all the counsel that we've received, it's, it's hard to know what to ask and where to set the boundaries and what matters and what doesn't. Well, everybody struggles in their first job, right? Like the thousands of PAs out there who have proven that they can get through not having sufficient training and preparation yep. for and, and become functional health care providers. What did you need that you didn't know that you needed before you started? Yeah, I think that's a great question. My bias going into this job was I have always been a hard worker. I struggled academically when I was younger and had to work harder than everybody else and do more and learn more and, you know, reach out for more help uh, to be able to be successful. But I have always hands down started any job and within three months just exceeded expectations. Everyone's happy. Wow, we can't believe you're so good. So I thought, oh, this is easy. I'll just do what I've always done and I'll just try really hard and work late and ask questions and everything's going to be wonderful. I'm going to provide such great care to my patients. And what I found was with the practice of medicine, at least in emergency medicine, you can't read enough up-to-date and listen to enough MRAP and read Harrison's long enough at night before you pass out to really do the best job for your patients. I feel like whatever it was that I needed wasn't sufficiently provided in that moment to allow me to feel comfortable and safe and like I could grow. I'm in a place right now where I am just incredibly happy. I love my team. I love my medical director. But before they hired me, they said, Tiff, we really like you, but we're not really equipped. 
to train. The bottom line is that the learning curve in particular with acute care medicine is very steep, particularly in community-based emergency mm -hmm. medicine, where you have less resources than you would at an academic facility, which is used to training people all the time. Yeah. And there's just fewer people around in a community hospital to help you. We expect too much from people from the second that they walk in the door. And it's interesting with the physician profession is set up in such a way that you come out of school, you know a lot of stuff in your head, you've been through two years of, of clinical rotations, but then you get another three or four years of residency yeah. to refine your craft and to become better and have gradually increased levels of responsibility and yeah. increased ability to manage certain levels of acuity. And that seems like a natural process to a physician. They're like, okay, yeah, when I was a first year resident and I was first out of school, like I didn't know this stuff and I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. The same physicians who have been through that process forget that they went through that process and they take somebody who's six months out of PA school or six months out of an NP program and they're like, well, clearly you're ready to, you know, not ask me too many questions about these chest pain patients and these people yeah. or with these couple oh. of medical issues, right? Like you're clearly ready to go put in a central line on this patient. And I think even if you have an attending who's very interested in being helpful, maybe they don't even know. Maybe they're not familiar with what your level of training is or they've actually never even like they've never gone through that process. Well, the system hasn't set them up yes. to have time that they need Correct. To, to train you and mentor you, right? Like if, yeah. if you know, if there's one doc and one PA yep. and it's, you know, 40 patients to be seen, well, who's going to see the patients if I have to sit down here and supervise you putting in a central line? Who's going to go see the patients? Sure. They're just going to keep building up. Yeah. I remember just sitting at my desk having capacity, meaning like I didn't have that many patients that I'd signed up for. I knew I needed to sign up for someone else and just sitting at my desk, staring at the computer monitor in terror and thinking, oh gosh, who can I pick up? Because I'm not sure how much help I'm going to have or how much help I'm going to need. And the residents would go see the patient. They would do the workup and they would present in the same way that I was presenting. But then it was required that the attending go and see their patient. Right. And I would watch them come back from the patient room and the attending would like go through the nuances with the resident of, oh, but you missed this or you could ask the question in this way. And the resident would say, oh, I hadn't thought to do it that way. And I remember just thinking like, have I, have I totally made the wrong career choice? Like I need that mentorship too, but the access just isn't generally there in most places because it's not set up that way. I'm not sure why. And it's an enormous loss, right? Because it wasn't set up in a way where they could support you and train you as a new grad and not have you walk away feeling awful every shift, right? Sure. And if they had had even a minimum kind of infrastructure in place, to help you along the way, you would still be there <laughs> and you would be competent and you would be comfortable and you wouldn't have been burned out and sure. you would be seeing patients and you would be excellent and you would be theirs mm -hmm. and you would be benefiting their organization, right? Absolutely. And I sure. think that this is what is happening. I don't know who's doing the hiring or who's making the decisions, but somehow there's a disconnect between the money and the time and the resources it takes to train somebody new mm -hmm. 
and then the money and the time and the resources it takes to replace that person if you don't train them properly because they burn out and they feel inadequate and they feel like they're never going to do it right. So my first thought was, okay, am I in the wrong profession? My next thought was, should I have done residency? There are optional residencies, which I think in general, I'm against more education, more time, right? Because at this point, I'm like, look, I've, you know, I got $200,000 that I owe to Sally Mae. How much more can we put off actual progress and being able to learn on the job? But I think it's a fair question in the context of safety and the ability to work a job where you feel like you can be successful. So what do you think about that as a PA educator? Well, number one, there's not enough fellowships and residencies that currently exist to support all new graduate PA students. Yeah. Right? Number two, we have a long, proud history of figuring it out and of our employers and our supervising physicians and our senior colleagues being able to help us to the point where we feel supported. All of the PAs who you and I saw even before we decided to become PAs, like mm -hmm. why did we become PAs? Because we met a PA and we were like, you are providing amazing care. Yeah. Really very smart, very competent. You're doing amazing things and, you know, you spent less time in school, right? You know, you talk about in some of your episodes about like how the healthcare system is a mess. And part of what we need is that human connection with our yeah. with a knowledgeable, competent provider who can listen to us, who can figure out what we need, who can educate us about what's going on with our body and how yeah. we can make ourselves better, right? So PAs are such an essential component of improving our healthcare system, right? And we, we can do so much if you can just get us through that initial learning period. Yeah. And so while it may become more common for there to be a formalized residency or fellowship for graduate PAs, and that may be a great pathway for some people, I don't think that widespread everybody does a PA fellowship after graduation is the answer. Mm -hmm. That really what we need is a variety of solutions depending on the healthcare system. If you're in a really large academic medical center that hires uh, APPs, nurse practitioners or PAs, mm -hmm. then the question is, well, why aren't you running a fellowship for them? Absolutely. Even if, even if you're not opening it up to people from outside your institution who are not employed, if you're training, you know, resident physicians, graduate physicians, why aren't you putting a more formalized structure in place to support your new grads or even PAs who are coming from a different specialty. Why don't you have that in place for them? Because you yeah. we have the academic resources to do that. I think that one of the healthcare economics issues that we've seen emerge in the past several years is just the explosion of urgent care. There's more urgent cares in my town than there are Starbucks, I swear. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know all of the ins and outs of the business models of urgent cares, but I wonder to myself sometimes if there are people running these urgent cares, starting these businesses who actually don't know what a PA or an NP can do. Right. So if you look at somebody who's been a PA for 10 years, right. And then you look at somebody who's been a PA for two weeks, right. And you say, they're the same. Yeah. They, I can pay them half the amount of money I would pay a physician. And they have the capability, theoretically, to see five patients an hour, yeah. right? And man, as a business owner, that looks great for me, right? Yeah. Like, but then you don't recognize the difference between a PA who's been graduated for two weeks and a PA who's been out for 10 years. 
and you don't have a structure in place to get them to that yeah. can and, and efficiently and effectively yeah. see, you know, four or five patients an hour. So that the solution is going to be different depending on the organization. Um, but in general, I think that we need to just start putting the message out, right? And remind sure. folks, right, that if you're if you're going to hire um, you know, a PA or an NP, you need to know what their experience level is. Mm-hmm. And it is not the right solution to say, I will not hire you unless you have this amount of experience. Mm-hmm. We need to train people. And it's not hard. It just takes a little bit of thought. You're putting in the money and the care and the time up front so that you don't have to put in all of the money and the care and the time to replace that person with all that person's mistakes on the back end. And I recognize that sometimes those are coming from two different budgets and that they're two different priorities, but you're going to pay one way or another, right? It's just, how are you going to pay? I I agree with you that it doesn't have to be super complex. I know just from my own experience, and I was talking to someone this weekend who's an endocrinology, and she said, you know, if I just had the ability to ask a question when I had a really complicated patient. You know, sometimes in the outpatient setting, you don't always have access to a physician because you're both running in and out of rooms and things like that, right? But how much would it cost to have a half hour meeting once a week with the new grads where you cover one patient case that they had where they can ask questions and get validation that they did the right things or learn about red flags that somehow they missed during school, right? Just something like that. That would buy a lot of loyalty, in my opinion. If I had someone who was willing to invest in me and I could feel like, oh, heck yeah, if I stay in this job two years from now, I'm going to be better than I am today. And I'm going to be more likely to deliver stellar care. Like I would stay there forever. That is a systems issue. It's built into whatever the hospital or the company is expecting in terms of their patient load. That's an expected aspect of a senior PA or a supervising physician's job. Mm -hmm. Building in space for the fact that they are going to need to do some teaching and some supervision Mm -hmm. of the APP who is working on that shift too. Um, That is not something where a new grad PA needs to come in and dictate to the CMO of the organization, you know, do your supervising physicians have time in their schedule to mentor me? Like you should ask that as a new grad PA, you know, at a job interview. Yeah. This is something that people who are higher up in the organization need to recognize as something that they need to do to protect their patients and to preserve their employees. Right. My students say things like, well, what can a PA do? What procedures can a PA do? That was one of the questions that this undergrad asked. And I said, well, if I go to the medical licensing board, I can print out a piece of paper that says these are the procedures I'm expected to be able to do. But that's not even the real answer, right? Like, like the real answer is what procedures can I do competently? There's a whole barrel of competencies. PAEA, our educational association, um, has a white paper, which we can link in the show notes about the competencies for physician assistant graduates. And it's not just medical knowledge. It's not just knowing like, you know, what's a heart attack and what's not. 
And it's not just procedures like, can you put in an IV or can yeah. you put in a Foley catheter? It's about, you know, all of the things that we need to be able to do in the clinic to be able to see patients, right? To be sure. able to just medicine effectively. The idea of competency is in a very simplistic way. Can you do it with me in the rooms? Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is, can you take a history and physical with me in the building where yeah. you're doing it in one room, maybe I'm seeing a patient in the other room and you can come get me if you have difficulty. Can you do it with me in town? Right. Like uh, you can call me and if you're really having trouble with it, I can come in and help you. Mm-hmm. Can you do it with me out of town where I know yeah. there is a very minimal chance that you will need my direct in-person help with mm-hmm. this whatever this skill is, um, to the point where I can go out of town while you're doing it, right? And so that's a very simplistic way to look at competency. But maybe we do need simplistic ways to look at competency. Ask yourself, what are the competencies that are required to do this job? What do I expect this person to be able to do? Right. Where are they along that continuum? You know, are they at the point where I know that they can do this with me in the building, but not in the room. Have I even thought about what all the competencies are? How do I take this new person and get them this like huge list of things that I have to think about every day? And how do I know where they're starting? And then how do I know how to define when they've met it? Am I always going to be in the building? You know, and maybe you are, maybe that's the kind of place that you work. So it's like, okay, well, I just need you to get to the point where you can do it with me in the building. Right. Yeah. But in some cases, it's going to be, I need you to be able to do a while I'm out of town because we're a one doc, one PA shop and you'll see patients while I go on vacation. The idea of taking this complex idea and really distilling it down into the idea that a new grad is most likely on these competencies going to lean towards the, I need more supervision. I need you to be available to me. And that someone who's been practicing for 20 years is, uh, is going to be on the other side and they're going to be intubating in the room by themselves and there's going to be trauma that comes in and they can handle that code all yep. on their lonesome, right? But that's not me, not yet. Right. right. Uh, I think that hospital administration or non-clinical leadership or any staff really that's working with a spectrum of experience, at least consider it, at least take take a moment to to consider what risk you are putting that new grad at, what risk you're putting your facility at by not implementing supervision or safety when it's appropriate. Yeah, definitely. So you have a paper that talks about what new grad PAs can generally do. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, of these competencies, how does this competency apply to my specialty? And then you do need to put some time and thought and effort into building a system in which you define what you want them to do. You define when you want them to do it, how you want them to do it, how much supervision they're going to have, what you want the end goal to be. Yep. Um, but you have to do some thought about that and then think about how can I make my system? Yeah. Making sure that everybody, everybody who this new grad interacts with is on board with being a teacher. Yeah. Right? Sure. From the secretary or the office manager all the way to the radiology technician who comes in. Right. Everybody needs to be willing to teach. And they have to know that I have a new person who's in my organization. They're on my team. And there are things about my job 
that they need to know. And I need to be willing to teach them. I think it's worth noting that healthcare really is a high reliability organization. And I know that's not something that everyone might be familiar with, but, you know, like the airline industry, um, nuclear plants, healthcare, firefighters, like certain police operations. But any organization where a small mistake, a small miscommunication results in a huge life-threatening consequential action. We forget that these are really high reliability organizations. There should be well-established protocols and systems in place. We should have an emphasis on communication and how we communicate with each other and how are we making sure that everyone understands that they have to support this new person because a consequence could be fatal. Um, and I think sometimes just in our daily running of trying to fill the schedule and trying to move things along and just get stuff done, that gets lost. Yeah. Yeah. It is the job of somebody within the organization. They're making the connections between what's happening at the bedside with patients and what's happening in the organization in terms of finances and turnover and training, yeah. money and all of that. And we definitely need to make sure that those connections are strong um, because you're right. When there's a disconnect between, you know, what we're willing to do with our money and what we expect to happen with patients at the bedside, then the person who's going to end up getting hurt is the patients at the bedside. Sure. Right? Sure. What advice would you give to a new graduate? What are things that they can do or within their scope of control? Yeah, great question. So I think it's important to be familiar with the environment that you're going into from talking to, you know, people who are more senior than you, talking to preceptors and getting a feel for the area that you're going to graduate into is important. Mm -hmm. And then knowing what the bare minimum is, right? So being very, very familiar with the average salary of someone in your specialty, your region, right? Because you can bet that there's going to be somebody who's going to want to give you half of that and make it sound like a good deal. And then when, once you've kind of gotten past that, like, you know, what am I facing in terms of, you know, the job market and what am I looking at in terms of salary, then I think that that's when it's time to start asking hard questions. And I usually suggest to new grads that the time to ask the hard questions is not at the initial job interview. So not at the thing where it's like, oh, are you like kind of an okay person who we can see possibly being part of our team, but that it is absolutely critical once you have been given a conditional offer to be spending, to be saying, okay, let me think about that. I really appreciate that offer. Can I please get some time to spend with your providers? That's when you get to ask the hard questions, right? Start observing very carefully what's going on in that clinical environment that you're going to put yourself into. What happens when the PA or NP who you're shadowing has difficulty with a patient? What is their relationship like with the medical assistant, with the nurse, with the front desk staff? What is that person talking to their colleagues about on their breaks in terms of the things that they're griping about? That yeah. Are going into it and saying, okay, what are the potential issues here? You need to pay attention, right? It's totally possible to come across as somebody who is assertive mm -hmm. and not needy, right? Yeah. And yeah. where you are advocating for you and for what you need without demanding that an organization twist and turn themselves into something 
that they can't be. You have to go into that shadow shift with a very real possibility that you may walk away from this. And that's so hard, right? I work in a very tough ER that mm -hmm. is a very difficult place to work. And that's the reason I work there to a certain degree, because it's very challenging and it challenges me in ways that I know I can handle. Mm -hmm. But if somebody came in and said, what is it like to work here? I would give them an honest answer. Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, what answer I gave to new people as they came in. And I remember saying things like, um, you know, sometimes I feel overwhelmed or sometimes I don't feel confident that I have access to all of the help that I need or I feel like I could use some more training or the schedule sometimes puts me in positions where I'm not comfortable that I've had enough sleep or enough, you know, uh, whatever I needed to function. But I certainly wouldn't have said, you know, everything's wonderful here. I think it's a great place for a new graduate, right? And it's interesting because I remember at some point asking you that exact question about your workplace. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm not really looking into this workplace because you said it's not good or something. I don't know. And you looked at me and you said, that's not at all what I said. What I said was, it's a really tough place to work. It's very challenging, but I love the environment and I think it's great. And I love the people I work with. I just but don't I think that's for it was you. Like for new grad. Exactly, <laughs> yes. right? So I think they're like varying degrees. And I think that is what I would say about my current workplace that I, I'm telling you, I love it. Right. But if, if a new grad said, should I work here? I would say, absolutely not. They, you need to get to the point. Like the reality yeah. is that we are, we are expanding <laughs> PA education big time. We're getting yeah. like 200 new programs or something. You know, yeah. every, every few years, we are expanding the role of, of PAs within our medical system. And it is not going to be okay to continue to have organizations where yeah. when somebody asks us, oh, do you like working there? We say, yes, but you wouldn't want to work here as a new grad. No, every organization needs to be a place where a new grad PA or a new grad NP with minimal experience can work. Because this is what it looks like to turn over a workplace, right? All of the old people are retiring. We have a huge number of people who left clinical healthcare altogether after the pandemic. We all need to be at a workplace, a clinical workplace that can effectively support a new grad PA. That is a really somehow controversial thought. And something that I had not really considered prior to right this moment. But I can't disagree with person, that. But you know what? We can talk about your feelings and, and any other CMO or CEO's yeah. feelings about the fact that they need to make space in their budget to make sure that they're training new people. Uh, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. Right? We, have, uh, we have a huge healthcare gap. We have a workforce that's turning over. And we have lots of new people. Yeah. Thankfully. And we don't need new people to come in for six months, burn out, and leave yep. healthcare altogether. We need new people to come in, feel supported, gradually climb that steep learning curve, you know, with us holding on to their hands on both sides and get you to the point where you are an amazing healthcare provider. Yeah. Like all of the PAs who came before you. 
Yeah. What advice would you would you say you could give to PA educators, program directors, all of these new programs that are opening up? How can they address this situation so that their new grads are more prepared to have a successful outcome? Man, what a big question. I think that I have a lot of faith in PAs. And again, maybe mm-hmm. just a killer optimist, right? <laughs> um, I think that the thing that makes a PA good at being a medical provider is that we perceive what we need to know and we perceive what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Find the bridge to get from one to the other, right? I wonder if there's a place for something like, I don't even know that a class would have done it or a course or a, a finite time, but maybe something like matching with the class ahead of us, right? To have some sort of mentorship. I was thankful to have had a relationship with my advisor that could help me, you know, through these things. But but what about for the people who, I don't know, moved across country or didn't have those relationships or weren't able to maintain them? Are there any out-of-the-box solutions that you see that could really address this need for almost like a, a soft need that isn't really defined? Well, tell me what you think about this. I think that the best types of mentorship relationships that I've had over the years have been organic. And haven't been out of the box. Right? Oh, that's interesting. So I think that it is great to open up opportunities for mentorship by providing a formalized connection between mm-hmm. people. But I th- if you think about all of the times in your life where you've been assigned a mentor, what percentage of those assignments turned into a relationship for you and turned into something that was meaningful to you, right? I think that in terms yeah. of mentorship, I think that if you are looking for a mentor, right? Yeah. You need to know why you are looking for a mentor and what you are looking to be mentored in. Mm-hmm. And if you are truly open to that and you start kind of putting yourself out there and finding, yeah, it, right? Like you, this is what you're doing with your life right now, right? Which yeah. is putting yourself out there in spaces where you're like, I just want to learn and want to grow. And I want to learn about this thing. Will you talk to me about this thing? And then you talk to people about yeah. this. And it turns into an organic mentoring relationship, right? And and that, I think, is the key, which is that you know that you want a mentor. Yeah. You, you're, cl- you're clear on kind of at least an area that you need mentorship in. Yeah. And that you're open to that and you start putting yourself in those spaces where you meet those people. So that is, I think, the most powerful thing that I personally have gotten from this talk today. And it's something that I really, I never thought about it in that way, but that absolutely resonates with me. So maybe, maybe really the lesson to put out there or the word to put out there is to the students themselves, the people who are getting ready to graduate and say, you know, mentorship can offer advice and help on things that you don't even know you have questions about yet. Like the things you don't know that you don't know you don't know, right? Like like this is the piece that I think is missing. And maybe it's just a message of keep your eyes and ears open and connect with people that you'll be able to reach out to whenever that comes up. So I would say that this is what we are trying to teach. What I personally, as an educator, am trying to teach students. Oh, PA school is not about learning to be a PA. Yeah. 
which is like a radical thing to say, right? You're like, I am <laughs> you to be a PA in this program where you thought that you were signing up to learn how to be PA. You need to understand that this process of being a PA is going to be a learning process that most of the things you learn, when you look back after 10 years of practice, most of the things that you learned to make you a competent PA are not things that you learned in school. Yeah. They are things that you learned on your own, right? Mm-hmm. That you learned through finding mentors, that you learned through talking to supervisors, talking to people who have done it, mm-hmm. that you've learned through observation, that you've learned yeah. through experience. You experienced something and then you went and looked it up or you listened to a podcast on it or you read an article about it, um, that you went to a CME conference about it. Like this gradual accumulation of competency I can't give you that in a nice, neat package after two years. Like I can give you that willingness and that curiosity and that wonder that is going to lead you to be open to that journey when you grow. So that when you go out as a new grad, you're open to the world and you say, I just want to learn all the things. And I can, and I can, and I can, because I had a lot of practice in PA school at teaching myself things that I didn't know, that is self-directed learning, right? Yeah. Directed, that nobody taught you how to how to figure that out, but you figured it out. And eventually over time, you became very, very competent because you were open to the experience of learning and you learned how to learn. Yeah. It's a really difficult situation to feel like you are working 14 hours a day, not for zero money, for right. negative money, right? Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> and you feel like an idiot all the time. You're learning more than you ever imagined you could learn, and yet you know nothing, right? Like it's really a tough couple of years. And I think that as a student, you just want to know that when you graduate, you want to feel like you're going to know something, and you do know you something. Know a lot. You do know a lot. I'm not going to say that you can't yeah. feel knowing nothing or knowing less than nothing. Yeah, of course. There's a lot. Right. But it's not enough. Yep. And that's where PA educators, people who are training new grad PAs on the job need to come together. It needs to feel like a supportive environment where it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to not know something. It's okay to need a little bit of guidance on how do you learn something that is part of supporting our profession and supporting our patients, ultimately. The most fantastic thing about being a PA educator is when I am a PA working in clinical practice, I might see 20 patients a shift, right? And when I am a PA working in PA education, I have seen 25 times many patients a shift, right? Because all of these people sitting in front of me and teaching them things that will plant the seeds that will help them to be competent healthcare providers. I'm seeing all of their future patients, right? Yeah. Some small influence on, you know, 25 times more patients than I would be able to see on my own. Yeah. It's one of the few things in life, right? Like a lot of effort that we put in is linear. And I think what's really cool is this is an exponential influence. Same with mentorship, right? Yeah, it, it is. And, 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 you know, we talk about new PAs needing to seek out mentors and be open to mentorship. But yeah. we as more experienced PAs, you know, as you kind of talked about, need to be 
open to what mentorship brings to our lives and be open to our experience and that we do know a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. That if we can be open to sharing those things and listening to where this person who's a relatively new person is, like, where are they? And it reminds us and think to myself, oh my gosh, like, I know a lot more than you do. Let me help you along the way. Yes. And, you know, we don't have to be where you are. We don't have to be a PA educator with, you know, 16 years experience, right? Like you can be a second year PA student. I would you say can, you, you know so much more yeah. on the job than you did when you were your first day on the job, right? Because yeah. it, you're right. It is exponential information. You mm-hmm. know, you learn, you learn how to learn and then you start learning and then you learn how to learn better and then you can learn more. Mm-hmm. And so like you're just, you know, each day on the job that you are in a supported environment where you have the space and the time and the curiosity and the support and the resources to help you you're going to just get better and better at learning and that's why PAs end up being so awesome just a few years into into practice they end up being amazing because they have had this organic process of learning medicine at the bedside from their patients yeah it's really cool it's such a you know it, it really is a great opportunity What's next for you, Carrie, other than the MDAPA? Uh, so I am starting a uh, PhD program in the fall at University awesome. of Baltimore in health professions education. So awesome. It's something that has been my passion uh, for a number of years now is now going to be my field of study. Okay. And, and I will get lots of opportunities to do something that I have not spent a lot of my adult life doing, which is writing and researching. Um and continuing to advance the profession in that way, because when I started as a PA, it was all about, you know, knowing more so I could help more people. Mm-hmm. That's my mission. And it turns into a cycle where it's like, you know, some things you want to help people. You help some people, you find out you need to know more things, right? And yeah, building along that process. And that's just kind of been what's driven my professional life. It's the whole cycle. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So where can people follow you to, oh, to track your journey? <laughs> LinkedIn? LinkedIn, you know. I would say that I'm a very, very part-time uh, social media person. I'm yep. not epic presence that uh, some people are. Um, well, you know, you have a lot going on, my yeah. Well, I catch Carrie on LinkedIn. She always posts interesting things, stuff you're doing down with the legislature, advocating for PAs. And, you know, sometimes we get some fun stuff on there, too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being willing to sit down and talk about ways that we can improve what we're doing. I want to talk all the PA things. I want to talk all the medical things and uh, talking to you. Well, we'll have to have you back on. Yep, absolutely. Talk to you soon. Awesome. All right. That is it for today's episode of Scrubs and Squats. I hope you enjoyed. And if you did, please like, review, and subscribe, and we will see you next week.